0: Welcome back to Spoonful of Sugar. Today's episode on prostate cancer will be hosted by Gary Price, a third-year medical student at the University of Tennessee. Hope you enjoy. Hey, future doctors, thanks for tuning in to Spoonful of Sugar, a podcast made for medical students by medical students to help the medicine go down. My name is Gary Price, and I'm a medical student at the University of Tennessee, and I'll be your host today. Do you know anyone affected by prostate cancer? If not, it's virtually inevitable your medical journey will cross paths with patients that are. In the United States, approximately 11% of men are diagnosed with prostate cancer over their lifetime, accounting for 29,000 deaths annually. Worldwide, prostate cancer accounts for about 366,000 deaths each year. So, regardless of the type of medicine you aspire to pursue, it is important for all physicians to recognize the signs and symptoms associated with prostate cancer. I will be asking lots of questions throughout our concise review of prostate cancer and I encourage you to pause and contemplate at any time. The goal of these questions is to make you think actively about prostate cancer. This is simply a review so don't be disheartened if you don't know the answer to a question at first because either way, you will. Keep in mind why you chose this particular episode and, with that, let's talk about prostate cancer. I'd like to add that occasionally content that I talk about will transcend the step one exam and I'll do my best to let you know when that is. But just something to keep in mind and definitely check with the resources that you use to to verify whether or not certain content is on step one. Okay, so how did prostate cancer rank in total number of deaths by cancer in the U.S. in 2019? Well, According to the CDC, prostate cancer ranked as the 5th most common cause of cancer death. Aside from non-melanoma skin cancer, prostate cancer is the most common cancer among men in the United States. Do you guys know which demographic has the highest incidence of prostate cancer in the United States? African American males over the age of 65 are most affected by prostate cancer in the United States. Now... Do you guys know what signs and symptoms prostate cancer typically presents with? Well, intrinsically, prostate cancer is typically asymptomatic, especially considering it is usually diagnosed in the local stage, otherwise known as, well, before it metastasizes. However, there are more frequent certain signs and symptoms when prostate cancer metastasizes, but we'll discuss those later in the episode. Now... Is prostate cancer an adenocarcinoma or a carcinoma? Prostate cancer is an adenocarcinoma, as the neoplasm primarily develops from the prostate glands. The prostate is about 30 grams in mass and is mostly composed of glandular tissue. The prostate produces fluid, which constitutes roughly 30 to 35% of semen. Just FYI, the remaining portion of seminal fluid is produced by the seminal vesicles. So... What's the general function of the prostatic contribution to the seminal fluid? Prostatic fluid contains many enzymes, including prostate-specific antigen, colloquially known as PSA, which is used controversially as a prostate marker. Some of these enzymes function to decrease the viscosity of the seminal fluid. Prostatic fluid also contains citric acid, making the fluid weakly acidic. The weakly acidic prostatic fluid buffers the weakly alkaline seminal vesicle fluid. However, the net pH is weakly alkaline, which ultimately allows sperm to survive longer in the acidic environment of the vagina. Do you guys know how the prostate gland is stimulated to perform these physiological functions? The prostate gland is stimulated by dihydrotestosterone, This will be important knowledge for when we discuss treatment for prostate cancer later in the episode. Understanding the anatomical location of the prostate is extremely important to completely understand prostate cancer. Let's see what you know already. So in relation to the bladder and rectum, where is the prostate located? The prostate is located at the base of the penis, which is inferior to the bladder and anterior to the rectum. Do you guys know why this is important? Since the prostate is located immediately anterior to the rectum, it allows us to screen, screen prostate cancer with the digital rectal exam. Now, using your knowledge of anatomy we just discussed, which zone of the prostate gland would you be most likely to palpate during a digital rectal exam? Okay, so during a digital rectal exam, you'd be most likely to palpate the peripheral zone of the prostate gland, which is located in the posterior portion of the prostate. So why is the peripheral zone of the prostate a significant prostatic landmark? Well, if you didn't know, the peripheral zone of the prostate is the origin of about 70 to 80% of prostate cancers. In contrast... Which zone of the prostate is enlarged in benign prostatic hyperplasia, or BPH? In BPH, the, per- the periurethral zone of the prostate undergoes hyperplasia. This is why urinary symptoms can present earlier in BPH compared to prostate adenocarcinoma. So going back to, to the digital rectal exam, what findings might concern you for prostate adenocarcinoma? Since the prostate is immediately anterior to the rectum, findings including hard nodules, general general firmness, or an unusual shape of the prostate felt when palpating the anterior rectum are all signs that are suspicious for prostate cancer. In contrast, which digital rectal exam findings are more suspicious for BPH? When palpating the anterior rectum, a smooth, rubbery, and regularly enlarged prostate is more suggestive of BPH. However, it's important to note that the digital digital rectal exam is regarded to have limited clinical utility with a positive predictive value of just 41%. Further, it is not currently recommended as a viable screening tool for prostate cancer when used alone or even in combination with any other screening method. I included the digital rectal exam in this episode for completeness sake as, as it is likely for doctors in training to perform it at some point in their careers. So, now that we know the digital rectal exam is not currently accepted as a valuable screening method, do you guys know which screening method is recommended for detection of prostate cancer? Prostate-specific antigen, commonly referred to as PSA, is indeed the recommended screening tool for prostate cancer. Okay, so we use PSA to screen for prostate cancer, but When should you initiate discussion about PSA screening with patients who have an average risk for prostate cancer? Well the data suggests initiating discussion about PSA screening with men at 50 years of age may detect prostate cancer 5-10 to years prior to clinical manifestations. Discussions about PSA screening should be initiated only if the patient has a life expectancy of at least 10 years. Now, let's talk about screening for patients who have an above-average risk for prostate cancer. Do you guys know which genetic mutation is associated with an increased risk for prostate cancer? So BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutations are associated with an increased risk of prostate cancer. There are varying recommendations for PSA screening in these patients as the specific mutation guides screening decisions. However, generally initiating discussions about PSA screening may be valuable started as early as age 40. A A more common scenario you are likely to encounter is initiating discussion with two other groups of patients who have a higher risk for prostate cancer. Do you guys know which other two groups of patients have a significantly higher risk for prostate cancer? So these two groups would be African American men and men with a family history of prostate cancer, and specifically a first-degree relative who was diagnosed before they were 65 years old. I'd like to preface by saying the specifics of PSA screening recommendations have not historically been featured on Step 1, but I've included them for completeness sake and to reinforce a general idea that PSA testing is not intrinsically a reliable marker for prostate cancer. It is recommended to initiate PSA screening discussions with patients who fall within the two demographics uh, I mentioned above at age 40 to 45, it's been shown that serial screening, as opposed to one-time screening, increases the sensitivity of positive PSA test results. There is controversy between follow-up screening every two years or four years, but a common strategy is allowing, allowing the degree and or the trend of previous PSA results to guide the frequency of future follow-up screenings. Now, do you guys know when to stop PSA screening in a particular patient? It's generally agreed that PSA screening is unnecessary for patients with a life expectancy less than 10 years. And just to comment that this is mostly because prostate cancer is is generally an indolent malignancy. And therefore, if they have less than 10 years, then it's statistically more likely that um, whatever is causing their life expectancy uh, to be less than 10 years will more likely uh, take them. Again, this is just the the general idea behind it. And it helps me remember this stuff, but also, the specifics of PSA screening recommendations, it's, it's not high yield for step one, but just understanding as you move into rotations, and it might and having this knowledge may help you by adding context to a specific question. But yeah, most experts agree that it's generally appropriate to stop PSA screening once patients are about 70 to 75 years old, reasoning that again, prostate cancer is an indolent or a slow growing neoplasm. So we've discussed who should go under undergo PSA screening. Now let's talk about interpreting the result. And don't worry about the specifics of these interpretations for Step 1. And I'll try to be more clear about that and let you know what is and what's not uh, noteworthy for the Step 1 exam. So, a PSA level of 4.0 or greater is the widely accepted standard for a positive screening result, as this threshold yields the... Relative best trade-off between sensitivity and specificity. One caveat is patients taking 5-alpha reductase inhibitors. These drugs are commonly used to treat male pattern baldness and prevent the progression of BPH. Again, BPH is a distinct condition from prostate adenocarcinoma. Can you guys think of any reasons why a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor might alter PSA levels? Recall from our normal prostate physiology discussion earlier that the prostate gland is stimulated by the hormone dihydrotestosterone. 5-alpha reductase is the enzyme that catalyzes the conversion of testosterone to dihydrotestosterone. So decreasing dihydrotestosterone production results in less prostate growth, less PSA production, and less prostatic fluid secretions. Therefore, to interpret the PSA screening results in a patient taking a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor, regardless of the dose you must first determine how long the patient's been taking it. So specific calculations for PSA screening interpretations almost certainly will not be on your step one exam. However, it is at least important to appreciate how treatment, how treatment for other and, androgen-relevant diseases may alter the interpretation of a patient's PSA level. So if a patient's been taking a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor for two years or less, providers, to, to providers should multiply the patient's raw PSA level by two. If the patient has been taking the medication longer than two years, you'd multiply by 2.5. Considering male male pattern hair loss, BPH, and prostate adenocarcinoma share much of the same demographic, it is crucial to know your patient's histories and confirm which medications they've been taking in order to make appropriate clinical decisions. There are a few other classes of drugs that have been shown to alter PSA levels. Can you guys think of any of these drug classes? So, while maybe not immediately intuitive, some other drug classes that can alter the PSA level are NSAIDs, acetaminophen, and statins. And there's data supporting their ability to alter these levels. However, unlike 5-alpha reductase inhibitors, there is currently no correction factor to account for PSA changes when taking these drugs. Simply put, it's important to document and remain in context as you monitor PSA changes in these patients over time. Okay, so let's say you now have a patient with a bona fide positive PSA screen. Besides prostate adenocarcinoma and BPH, can you guys think of anything else that can elevate PSA levels? Other causes of an elevated PSA include acute and chronic prostate inflammation, or prostatitis, which can occur in the presence or the absence of infection. Perennial trauma is another one that's including trauma from a, a digital rectal exam or sexual activity, and also recent ejaculation within 48 to 72 hours of testing can also alter PSA levels, although this is noted to only be a slight increase. So if a patient recently had a prostate biopsy or transurethral resection of the prostate, known as a terp, how long is it recommended to wait before obtaining a PSA level? Well, the data show waiting at least six weeks after one of these procedures is necessary to obtain a reliable PSA test result. As you've likely put together by now, PSA testing is not a perfect system and lacks specificity. Therefore, sufficiently interpreting PSA levels requires an appreciation of each patient's complete context. There's another type of PSA test that helps precipitate prostate cancer from other causes of an elevated total PSA. This is the serum free and bound PSA test that determines the ratio of free PSA to PSA that's bound to proteins. You guys know if it's an increased or decreased free PSA to bound PSA ratio that would suggest prostate cancer? A decreased free PSA to bound PSA ratio is associated with prostate cancer. There is no standardized cutoff value that would starkly distinguish prostate cancer. However, the free PSA to bound PSA ratio is an analog or continuous measurement that increases or decreases the likelihood of prostate cancer in proportion to how low or high the ratio is. Since there is not a standardized cutoff value for the free PSA to bound PSA ratio, it is important to use proper clinical judgment when deciding to favor sensitivity versus specificity in each individual patient. If using this if using this test in a patient with a normal PSA, a normal total PSA value, do you guys think the free PSA to bound PSA ratio would more so increase the sensitivity or specificity of cancer detection in this patient? So, for a patient with a normal total PSA value, would that would having a subsequent Free PSA to bound PSA ratio increase the sensitivity or specificity more for cancer, prostate cancer, in this particular patient. So in patients with a normal PSA value, the free PSA to bound PSA ratio would more so increase the sensitivity of cancer detection. Okay, so does testing with an increased sensitivity function to rule diseases in or rule them out? Testing with an increased sensitivity functions to rule disease out. For example, if a patient has a normal, therefore negative, total PSA level and a normal or increased free PSA to bound PSA ratio, Remember, because a decreased ratio, it more likely suggests prostate cancer. Then we would be more, we would be more able to confidently rule out prostate cancer in that patient. So a mental shortcut you can use is the mnemonic snout and spin, which means that highly sensitive testing rules disease out, and highly specific testing rules disease in. Snout and spin. Now, what type of total PSA result would create a context where the free PSA to bound PSA test would actually increase the specificity of testing? In patients with an elevated total PSA, which is 4.0 or greater, following up with a serum free PSA to bound PSA ratio would increase the specificity of cancer detection. Recall there are several causes of an elevated total PSA test while a decreased free PSA to bound PSA ratio is more specific to prostate cancer. Therefore, an elevated total PSA level complemented by a decreased free PSA to bound PSA ratio allows us to more confidently rule prostate cancer in for the patient's differential diagnosis. To close on lab screening and testing for prostate cancer, Hopefully, you can now see that clinical acumen in this context requires understanding of how each test alters the likelihood of disease in each patient. There's certainly room for improvement in the detection of prostate cancer, but just a little FYI, novel tests such as the percent pro PSA are being developed by researchers and and is being evaluated by the FDA. For now, there are three broad indications to refer patients to urology for further assessment of abnormal prostate-related findings. Now, you're unlikely to be asked about this on step one, but you guys know or can make an educated guess on what these three broad indications would be. It's recommended to refer patients to urology in the case of one, a total PSA value of 4.0 or greater, two, A patient taking a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor whose total PSA value rises by at least 0.5 over any time period. Or 3. Anytime there are abnormal digital rectal exam findings such as nodules, induration, or asymmetry, regardless of total PSA levels. Okay guys, we've talked a lot about prostate cancer, but have yet to talk about managing patients who have actually been diagnosed with prostate cancer. Do you guys know how prostate cancer is diagnosed? A diagnosis of prostate adenocarcinoma almost always requires biopsy and histological interpretation of the specimen. The most common method is a needle core biopsy under ultrasound guidance which involves obtaining 12 tissue samples from various sites randomly distributed among the prostate. do you know what framework is used to interpret the biopsy specimen in the context of prostate adenocarcinoma? When cancer is present, it, requires, it, re, it is required to be graded immediately using the Gleason grading system. It's not sufficient for the pathology report to merely confirm the presence or absence of prostate adenocarcinoma. There are two acceptable potential results of a prostate biopsy for prostate adenocarcinoma. There's either no adenocarcinoma detected or a Gleason score which grades the tumor. The Gleason score is based on the architectural features, growth patterns, and degree of differentiation of prostate cancer cells. Do you guys know the range of potential scores determined by the Gleason grading system for one particular sample of tissue? So using the Gleason grading system, tumors are graded from 1 to 5. A grade of 1 represents prostate cancer cells being the most differentiated, while a grade of 5 represents the least differentiation. Now, let's take a step further in understanding the Gleason score. Remember, the most common method to biopsy a prostate for suspected adenocarcinoma is is to take 12 tissue samples among the entire prostate. The final Gleason score involves adding the two most prevalent differentiation patterns. The most prevalent grading pattern is called the primary grade, and the second most prevalent is the secondary grade. I wouldn't worry too much about this for step one, but allow me to quickly illustrate how the Gleason score is determined. Recall that each individual site is graded between one and five, and typically 12 samples of prostate tissue are, is take, are taken. Now, let's say you've you've been given six Given six of these tissue samples, a grade of three, three of the samples were grade four, two samples were grade five, and one sample, let's say, was grade one. From this biopsy specimen, which two grades will we use to calculate the Gleason score? So to reiterate the Gleason score is determined by the two most frequent grades. So, we had six samples that had a grade of three, and we had three samples that had a grade of four. Therefore, we'd add three plus four, which sums to a composite Gleason score of seven. So, you guys think our hypothetical patient has prostate adenocarcinoma? The answer is yes. It is generally accepted that a composite Gleason score of six to 10 is sufficient for an official diagnosis of prostate adenocarcinoma. Pathologists generally do not diagnose prostate cancer in patients with Gleason scores of 2 to 5. Therefore, you should remember that a composite Gleason score of 6 to 10 is virtually always required to diagnose a patient with, a, with prostate adenocarcinoma. Now, th- This is unlikely to be on step 1, but something to keep in mind is there are significant differences in patients sharing the same combined Gleason score. For example, our hypothetical patient received a primary grade, again that's the most frequent grade, of 3, and a secondary grade, which again is the second most frequent grade, of 4. So a primary grade of 3 and a secondary grade of 4. If these were reversed and the patient instead had 6 samples of grade 4 and 3 samples of grade 3, do you think their clinical outcome would be significantly different? Actually, yes. The Gleason score of 7 is divided into grade group 2 and grade group 3. Our original hypothetical patient with a primary grade of 3 and secondary grade of 4 would fall under grade group 2. However, if the patient had a primary grade of 4 and a secondary grade of 3, they would fall under grade group 3. It's important to make this distinction, as data show that patients categorized as Gleason score 7 grade group three have statistically significant worse clinical outcomes when compared to grade group two. Again, I don't, I would not expect this to be on step one, but something to to keep in mind, especially moving forward in your training. Hopefully now you have more of an appreciation for how prostate cancer is graded. Next, let's talk about staging. Staging of the prostate of prostate cancer involves using the TNM or tumor node metastasis system. TNM staging is good to know for step one, especially for Hodgkin lymphoma. However, I, in this context, I would I would recommend appreciating but not memorizing the specifics of prostate cancer staging. So there are two categories of tumor staging. That's clinical T staging and. Pathologic T staging. Do you guys know what the most salient difference is between these two types of tumor staging? Well, in clinical staging, the patient still has their prostate. In pathologic staging, the patient's prostate has been removed, which allows for more accurate evaluation. Now, let's start with clinical tumor staging. What methods do you guys think are used for clinical tumor staging? Well, as you might suspect, uh, clinical methods are used uh, for clinical tumor staging. So, clinical tumor staging is based on the results of the digital rectal exam, the transrectal ultrasound-guided biopsy findings, and sometimes imaging studies. Clinical tumor staging ranges from T1 to T4, and the specifics of these are not likely to show up on step one, just FYI. But in T1... Lesions are not palpable. In T two, lesions are palpable, but they appear to be confined to the prostate. In T three, lesions extend through the prosthetic capsule. In T four, tumors are fixed to or invade adjacent structures. There are substages for each tumor stage, so I I'd encourage you to look further into those if they're if you're interested. Clinical tumor staging is necessary when planning initial treatment. However, clinical tumor staging has been shown to have potential for underestimating the extent of disease. On the other hand, pathologic tumor staging is a more accurate method and ranges from T2 to T4. And In pathologic tumor staging, T2 lesions are defined as being confined to the prostate, while T3 lesions have extended beyond the prostate, and T4 lesions are fixed or have invasion of adjacent structures other than the seminal vesicles. Okay, so moving on, nodes, node, or N, staging is simpler in structure. Both clinical and pathologic end staging results in one of three possibilities. If the regional lymph nodes have not been assessed, the end stage is NX. If the regional lymph nodes are not involved, the end stage is N0. If the regional lymph nodes are involved, the end stage is N1. All right, guys, where are the regional lymph nodes of the prostate? So the regional lymph nodes of the prostate are the nodes of the true pelvis located below the bifurcation of the common iliac arteries. Lymph node involvement outside the true pelvis, that's generally considered distant metastases. So lastly, metastasis, or M-staging, is classified as either M0, which is the absence of distant metastases, or M1, in which distant metastases are present. M1 is subdivided based on the location of the metastases, but that is all the detail I'm going to go in here. Now, if a patient is being staged for prostate cancer, and it is known they have involvement of the superficial and deep inguinal lymph nodes, how would you guys broadly classify the M stage of this patient? This patient should be classified as M1, as the superficial and deep inguinal lymph nodes lie outside of the lymph nodes of the true pelvis. So this seems like a nice segue to talk about the most common sites of prostate adenocarcinoma metastases. Besides the lymph nodes, do you guys know which type of tissue prostate cancer most frequently metastasizes to? Prostate cancer most frequently metastasizes to bone particularly the pelvis and lumbar spine. Okay, so once prostate cancer has metastasized the bone, what do we expect, blastic or lytic lesions on imaging? Prostate cancer characteristically causes blastic bone lesions, and I think that is important to know for step one. What other metastatic cancer can create blastic bone lesions? So, actually, breast cancer, when metastasized to bone, is known to cause blastic bone lesions. Generally, virtually all other cancers are considered to cause lytic bone lesions. Therefore, the presence of blastic bone lesions really helps narrow down the differential diagnosis. So, what serum lab value would you guys expect to be elevated in a patient with blastic bone lesions? So, typically, Alkaline phosphatase would most likely be elevated due to increased activity of osteoblast. Metastatic prostate cancer to the bone will most commonly be manifested in the patient by lower back pain or pelvic pain that is constantly present. So, what is the initial treatment for patients in this, in this condition? In this condition being metastatic prostate cancer that's metastatic to the bone, what's the initial treatment? Initial treatment of patients with prostate cancer that's metastatic to the bone is with sy- systemic anti-cancer therapies such as abiraterone prednis- with prentazone, enzalutamide, radium-233, docetaxel, cabazitaxel, and, meti- and, and metoxantrone. Now all these medications have been shown to reduce bone pain in patients with prostate cancer, If the systemic anti-cancer therapy fails to control your patient's bone pain, what's the next treatment of choice? Well, if systemic therapy fails, then external beam radiation therapy is your next treatment of choice. We've discussed treating bone pain associated with metastatic prostate cancer, but let's widen the scope and discuss how prostate cancer is treated generally. Now This is unlikely relevant for step one, but do you guys know what Gleason score and total PSA level indicates prompt discussion of interventional treatment with the patient? A Gleason score of 7 or total PSA of 10 or greater are indications to begin treatment. Please note that a tumor stage of T2B to T2C also indicates recommendation for treatment initiation. But we didn't cover that level of detail earlier to remain with the goals of this episode. Now, do you guys know what is recommended to treat these patients with? So for patients that have just breached the threshold of intermediate risk, quote unquote, which is defined by the values I stated just a few moments ago, Treatment should be initiated with external beam radiation therapy, preferably in combination with androgen deprivation therapy to mitigate or prevent recurrence or also prevent disseminated disease. For more aggressive treatment, these patients may elect to undergo radical prostatectomy with pelvic lymph node dissection. Clinical judgments used at this intermediate stage, as certain favorable nuances may indicate continued active surveillance as a more appropriate option. So generally, the majority of prostate cancer is treated with radiation therapy and androgen deprivation therapy. You may refer to, you, you to castration-sensitive or castration-resistant prostate cancer, and castration can be achieved either surgically or medically. Do you guys know which classes of drugs are used to induce medical castration? Medical castration can be induced with gonadotropin-releasing hormone agonists such as luprolide or, or uh, gonadotropin-releasing hormone antagonists such as Degarelix or relugalex. Now, why would treatment of prostate cancer, which feeds on androgens, be treated with an agonist of a hormone that naturally stimulates production of androgens do you guys know why this works so naturally gonadotropin releasing hormone is released in a pulsatile fashion while the gonadotropin releasing hormone agonist drugs are delivered continuously initially the gonadotropin releasing hormone agonists cause an increase in both LH and FSH, that's luteinizing hormone and follicle stimulating hormone, release. So that results in an increase in testosterone production by lading cells. Uh oh, what are we doing to this poor patient? Fear not, because after about one week of therapy, gonadotropin releasing hormone receptors are downregulated on the gonadotropin producing cells. Resulting in a decline in LH and FSH production in the pituitary. Do you guys know how long it takes for gonadotropin releasing hormone agonists to achieve castration levels of LH and FSH? Castration levels of LH and FSH are usually achieved within three to four weeks. Continuation of therapy is centered around maintaining serum testosterone levels at castrate levels. Within the first few days after gonadotropin-releasing hormone therapy is initiated, the transient rise in LH can cause an uncommon adverse effect called the flare phenomenon. Do you guys know what symptoms are associated with the flare phenomenon? So, the initial rise in LH, therefore testosterone, can transiently exacerbate prostate cancer growth. It can present as bone pain, bladder obstruction, or generally any other symptom caused by prostate cancer. You guys know how to prevent this flare phenomenon? The flare phenomenon is prevented with two weeks of anti-androgen therapy upon initiation of gonadotropin-releasing hormone agonist therapy. As you might imagine, using gonadotropin-releasing hormone antagonists avoids the flare phenomenon. Do you guys remember the names of the two gonadotropin-releasing hormone antagonists I briefly mentioned earlier? The two notable gonadotropin-releasing hormone antagonists are degarelix and Relugolix. Degarelix is administered via monthly injections, while Relugolix is an oral drug taken once daily. The dosing schedules of these drugs are unlikely to show up on step one. Just FYI. Okay, so considering we have multiple options, do you guys know which class of hormonal drugs is currently recommended as first-line androgen deprivation therapy for prostate cancer? So gonadotropin-releasing hormone agonists, such as luprolide, are generally considered first-line, while relugolix and degarelix are considered alternatives depending on cost, compliance, availability, and insurance coverage. Androgen deprivation therapy should be initiated promptly in the presence of symptomatic metastases of prostate cancer. Alright guys, I hope you now feel more confident about your understanding of prostate cancer. Thank you for hanging in there with me. I'd like to close with a few questions and take home points to make sure you retain this information and get the most out of your time spent with me today. Remember that prostate cancer is most commonly diagnosed is the most commonly diagnosed cancer in men and has been the fifth most common cause of cancer death across all demographics. Do you guys remember which demographic is disproportionately affected by prostate cancer? That's right. African American males, especially age 65 and older, are disproportionately diagnosed with prostate cancer. Screening for prostate cancer typically begins around age 50. But providers should initiate discussion about prostate cancer screening as early as age 40 with African-American patients and patients with a first-degree family history of prostate cancer. And do you guys remember what, what method is used to screen for prostate cancer? Yep, prostate cancer is typically screened with a total PSA. Remember, an elevated total PSA is not specific to prostate cancer and by no means is used to diagnose prostate cancer. Do you guys remember how prostate cancer is diagnosed? Prostate cancer is diagnosed by biopsy and is immediately graded using the Gleason score. Typically, a Gleason score of 6 or greater is sufficient for an official diagnosis. When prostate cancer metastasizes beyond the regional lymph nodes, where does it most commonly metastasize to in more advanced disease? It's very important to appreciate that prostate cancer tends to metastasize to bone, particularly the lumbar spine and pelvis, where it characteristically produces blastic bone lesions. And I'm not sure if that's high yield, but... I think, but that is something very important to know, and it can help you really narrow down your differential, and virtually just by the demographic of the patient. So, blastic bone lesions. Think first, especially in a male. Think prostate cancer, and it has been shown that certain that breast cancer can cause blastic bone lesions as well. However, this would be unlikely, in and in a, relatively unlikely in a male. When this happens, patients will report the bone pain, and it's, it's virtually constant in timing and severity and independent of physical activity. So, being independent of physical activity is also helpful to know when answering questions. I want to emphasize that prostate cancer bone metastases create blastic bone lesions. Really, guys, I'm serious. <laughs> Since, again, most other cancers with bone metastases create lytic bone lesions. And these, and when you're looking at imaging, especially so, like for example, an X-ray, a blastic bone lesion will appear as like a focal hyperdense lesion, while a lytic bone lesion would create a hypodense focal lesion. One important differential diagnosis that personally came to mind is. Um, multiple myeloma, so it typically shares has a lot of overlap in the in the demographics of uh, multiple myeloma and prostate cancer. But uh, multiple myeloma presents with lytic bone lesions, while prostate cancer has the blastic bone lesions. And also in multiple myeloma, you would look for for other findings such as hypercal hypercalcemia and And renal involvement or renal failure, possibly height reduction, and uh, very importantly, anemia. Now, the anemia in multiple myeloma, it it may be due to decreased bone marrow from these lytic lesions and and or decreased uh, erythropoietin production from the renal involvement slash renal failure in patients with multiple myeloma. So that's a, that's a good way to distinguish the, the two diseases. And it's important to know because it's likely that you'll be asked to make a diagnosis ba- based on some of these features in, um, in a patient with uh, low back pain and fits the demographic for both of these uh, diseases. Okay, so moving forward with the recap now. I won't talk about bones much more, if at all, I promise. (laughs) But remember that prostate cancer can be treated with surgery, radiation, or with medications that alter the androgenic axis. Now, which androgen primarily stimulates the prostate? That's right. The prostate is stimulated by dihydrotestosterone, an androgen that can be synthesized from testosterone via the enzyme 5-alpha reductase. Last question, guys. Let's say you decide to treat a patient with prostate cancer using medical castration to quiet their androgenic axis. What do we say was the recommended treatment for medical castration, and what adjunctive therapy could you add to increase the efficacy and safety of this treatment? You got it. For medical castration, a gonadotropin-releasing hormone agonist such as luprolide is used and a gonadotropin-releasing hormone antagonist such as degorelix or relugolix is recommended as an adjunct for the first two weeks to prevent or mitigate an acute exacerbation of prostate cancer. A major difference between gonadotropin releasing hormone agonist therapy and normal physiologic gonadotropin releasing hormone release is that the agonist therapy involves continuous stimulation of the anterior pituitary, which downregulates gonadotropin releasing hormone receptors over time. In contrast, in normal physiology, gonadotropin releasing hormone is released in a pulsatile fashion, which does not typically downregulate gonadotropin releasing hormone receptors. It's critical to remember this distinction. So these are the take-home points you should absolutely understand for step one. Remember that we are all in this together. Let's, let's all take care of ourselves and each other as we prepare to take care of our patients. Whenever you have an SOS moment, Spoonful of Sugar is always here to help the medicine go down. If you found this episode helpful, please consider subscribing to our podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, visit our website at SpoonfulOfSugar.org and post them under the link for this episode. Take care, and thank you for listening to this episode of Spoonful of Sugar.